Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And we're both board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. Good morning, everybody. Jake and Brian here again. And today we're going to discuss some specifics about parental alienation because it's such a broad topic. We thought we'd break it into pieces. And and in particular, we wanted to discuss the teeth of it. In other words, what can be done if it's going on and you can prove that to a court. We've got prior and future ones about how you prove it and, and what to do if you're falsely accused and those type of things. But today we wanted to talk about when it's actually occurring or at least a court thinks it's occurring. So uh, there are a variety of options and remedies that you have in a courtroom to address that. I'll start with the most extreme and maybe we'll move towards some of the less extreme. The most extreme would be for the court to forbid the offending parent, the alienating parent from having either any contact with with the child or having any meaningful contact with them, maybe through supervision. Jake, do you want to talk a little bit about a circumstance where a judge might think that extreme of a remedy was the best interest of the child? Yeah, and that it is extreme, and but I think a lot of the literature does talk about that in the extreme circumstances that frankly that's the only way that works. And we'll go through the other remedies, but as a reminder, parental alienation is when you have one parent who just has a campaign against the other parent trying to do just what it says, alienate the, the, the child from that parent. The ultimate goal being to have that child reject the other parent, and so the alienated parent has the child 100% to himself or herself, and it can be caused for a variety of reasons, anger about the relationship, just because some type of psychological or psychiatric disorder, or a combination of all those, but yeah, you do see these situations where it's just this, re- and I think campaign is the best way to describe it, it's just this relentless campaign with the child to try to damage the relationship with the other parent, and they just cannot support it. And sometimes it's blatant. The best analogy that comes to mind is, is probably like racism. Sometimes it's absolutely blatant where it comes out of somebody's mouth, and they say it, and they say these awful words to the child. And then sometimes it's a little, it's a little under the surface where I'm not going to say it, but I'm certainly not going to support the relationship with the other parent. I'm not going to support any type of therapeutic intervention. I'm going to use passive aggressive words to undermine the relationship. I think you see that a lot of times with oversharing with kids or what, what the alienated parent thinks of as, thinks of as telling the kid the, the truth because in his mind or her mind, it is the truth but saying awful things about the other parent. Your father abandoned us, or your mother never supported us, or your mother had an affair, or something like that. And so when you have those extreme circumstances, it's, I think it's, it usually takes quite a bit for a judge to go to the extreme. Usually you see a pattern, but a lot of times in these extreme circumstances, you see a parent who just can't help it. I mean, you order them, don't do it. You tell them to encourage the relationship. You tell them not to alienate. Uh, and they just can't do it. And, yeah, some of the extreme circumstances, I've seen people in a divorce, for example, I had a case where the mother produced a bunch of recordings with her and the child, and she thought the recordings were helpful for her because she said, look, the child's 
agreeing with me and all these awful things about his dad. And you listen to the recordings, it's just horrible. It's the mom saying, completely leading this poor child who's about eight years old, just, don't you not like going to see your dad? Doesn't he make you uncomfortable? Don't you just miss me when you're over there with him? And this poor eight-year-old, of course, agreeing with his mom, but being led through that. That's just one of many examples that can be happening. But, But like you're saying, Brian, when I think a judge gets to that point, Really, the um, literature talks about that the parent that is being alienated from the child should have restricted access or, or no access or, or supervised access. And then the child actually needs to be placed with the alienated parent, the parent who's been rejected. The child needs to be placed with that parent. And everybody, of course, needs to go into intensive therapy. You know, the alienated parent, the child, uh, the parent who's been alienated. A lot of times you see a family therapist. People cut off from access to a child for, you know, 30 days, six months. It just depends on um, what the therapists are saying and what progress is being made. But it's, a, I think, a tough pill for some judges to swallow, because you, especially because you're dealing with a rejected parent usually. And so I'm really going to take this child who's rejecting this parent and place it with that parent. But I think with the appropriate professionals and the lit- showing the literature and everything, that is a remedy that I know I've, I, we've both been successful when appropriate in getting the court to, to make those orders. Has that been your experience, Brian? Exactly. It's, it's not what a judge wants to do when you walk into the courtroom, but if, if given no other alternative, they'll do it. It's been my experience. And, and just so everybody knows, the difference between no visitation or no contact is, um, and supervised is that there would be in a supervised setting, there would actually be contact between the parent and the child in, in person generally. And, but with a neutral third party, a professional there to observe and report on it. The idea being that that will stop the alienating parent from more alienating behavior. What, what actually happens a lot of times is that, that they continue to do it in a way that they think is not, is, is more subtle. Like you said, they just can't stop. And then they dig themselves into a deeper hole. And that often will be, if there is going to be a complete cutoff, that's often what occurs. And, and I do think it's also age specific. You, you brought up a good point about the difficulty of if the alienating parent is sufficiently brainwashed the child, especially a 16, 17 year old, it gets real difficult to, for the alienated parent, the victim parent, to rebuild that relationship. And, and then, of course, you can, the second the kid turns 18, they're suddenly out of the court's control. And, and what happens after that is really up to the child. It's, that's a whole other variable that, that you can have. So let's talk about some less, less dramatic remedies, although these are often the first step that then gets escalated if there are further problems. But I've seen courts, for example, put some very strict injunctions in place, which are court orders saying you're not allowed to do certain things, for example, undermine the other parent, talk bad about the other parent. I've seen the courts give additional time to the alienated parent, the victim parent, to try to repair that relationship. What other, what other remedies have you seen that are short of the, the supervised route? Yeah, they certainly, the time, injunctions, and, and, and they're definitely, you're almost always going to get injunctions, whether or not people follow them or not. They could do appoint a guardian or an amicus to investigate further. I mean, sometimes judges have a strong suspicion that it's happening, uh, but they want a professional investigating some more. They'll do an alienation evaluation, custody evaluation, or, or guardian ad litem, just to really, you know, see what's going on before escalating to that more extreme 
remedy. A lot of times family therapy putting, put, being put in place. We have a family therapist. Essentially, just throwing counseling at, at, at the problem, which can be successful in some, some situations. And you see the alienating parent typically ordered to go to counseling. Then a lot of times it's a good time for the alienated parent to go to counseling, not that he or she's done anything wrong, but just being able to deal with the situation and understand how to deal with a child that's rejecting you for no justifiable reason because you're being alienated. And then the child, a lot of times you see the child have an individual therapist and then you'll have a family therapist for the whole unit because the family, the child's therapist can't really act as a family therapist and really shouldn't be pulling in mom, dad, or mom and mom or dad and or whoever the family unit is, pulling them in to the adults having counseling with that child's therapist. That really should be a, a role for a family therapist to work with the family unit, and then the child maintains his or her own individual individual therapist so that child has that kind of protection. And I think in a judge's mind, and a lot of times this is the case, the, a family therapist can do boots on the ground and try to work through it. And then the family therapist comes back and says, or a kid's therapist or you know, one of the parents therapist comes back and says, look, alienation really is happening here and it's continuing. It's not just that it's happened, but it's continuing. It's not, uh, it's not getting fixed. Then you can see that hooks go to the next, so the next extreme, like we were talking about, we're removing time or uh, either somewhat or completely. So it's like a step in the progress. So seeing if, if this is, uh, I, I guess it's, I've heard some mental health professionals describe it as alternative intervention it's a step uh, that you could take before going to the extreme with the hopes that everybody gets better and that it stops. We can be skeptical and say it doesn't. And if somebody really is alienating a child, then it's going to stay that way. But you do want to, a lot of times you do want to see if a therapy can fix the, the situation with court monitoring everything. The consistent theme about all of this is having a judge involved in your life because I will be skeptical on this one. I don't know about you, Brian, but I've never seen it I've never seen it get fixed without there being court intervention, either, even if it's just on the light side with injunctions and some really clear orders on time to all the way extreme. I just, if it's happening, it, it's, it's not going to stop on its own. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think you pointed out the main reason for it early on, which is the parent doing the alienating. I think they really believe they're doing the right thing. It's clear to everybody else they're not, but they believe it that for whatever reason, they need to tell the truth to the child or need to protect the child from, and, and therefore, how do you stop that? How do you stop a parent from doing what they think is right without real strong court intervention? I don't really see an option in that particular scenario. Yeah. And then back to court intervention, I think therapy is, is a less extreme intervention. And then it does need to be really clear, and I encourage clients about this, of uh, you got to be, for, for, particularly for non-custodial parents, is you have to be protective of your time with the child. If you go down this road of the child's, yeah, the child's upset or rejected me at this time, so I'll just not do my weekends right now, or I'll just give, uh, his mom says that he doesn't want to see me this weekend, so I won't do it, or his dad says that he doesn't want to talk to me or she doesn't want to talk to me, so I'll just give it a week or two. I, that is a slippery slope, and I, I've, I've definitely not seen that work. You know, I, I've frankly seen that backfire quite a bit because it plays into the theme. What the alienated parent does is goes, your dad doesn't want to go see you, your mom doesn't want to see you, they don't like you, they're bad, whatever. And then contacts the other parent and says, our child doesn't want to see you. The other parent goes, okay, I'll not do my time. And that plays into the theme. See, look, 
your your dad or your mom doesn't want to go see you. I told you. And it's you and I think the least extreme of the interventions is just being super stubborn about your time and saying, I'm not giving up time with my child, even if it's a, it can be hard, it can be, it will be hard. It's really hard exercising that possession time when you have a child that's rejecting you, but you can't give up that time because it just makes the problem worse in my experience. I think the least extreme remedy is just going there on enforcements when necessary and just being really clear that, you know, the court order possession schedule needs to be enforced. It needs to be followed. Uh, you're not going to deviate from it. The child doesn't get a pick. The other parent certainly doesn't get a pick. We've got a court order in place. We can follow it. So that's probably the least, the least extreme intervention. And sometimes that's what people uh, do. Sometimes that works. Um, and sometimes it's a good first step. Just I, I'm enforcing my time. And then if this continues, then go the therapy route. And this continues, then go the more extreme route. I think it's like you said at the beginning, Brian, it's just sort of a case by case basis. And Sometimes these cases get to us and it's past. It's just like having cancer. It's past where you can just do kind of half measures and you just have to go full bore on it. But, you know, and that's hard. I mean, it's really hard. This chemotherapy is really hard. Uh, Sometimes that's the only option you have. Yeah, very true. All right, last, um, but definitely not least, um, remedies related to uh, finances. I think you and I would agree that these kind of fighting parental alienation is uh, very expensive. And um, assuming it's not in a divorce setting, but in, in a, some kind of modification or post, post final order situation, your remedies are, are somewhat limited. You've got, there are parts of the family code that allow you to obtain, if you're a victim of this, to obtain attorney fees from the other side, either at the beginning of a case or uh, called interim fees or anytime during the case, or at the end of it, there's also the route of, if you go through an enforcement, which is a different legal proceeding, basically to punish somebody, there's some stronger, some stronger parts of this. But in general, we could probably have a podcast just on this topic, but we'll make it short. Uh, in general, I found that it's difficult to get fees up front when you start off with a parental alienation case for a couple of different reasons. And that it's, I'm not going to call it easier, but it's more possible at the end of a case to get, uh, if you're successful with it, to get a judgment. But actually collecting that money is, is another whole ordeal a lot of times. That's a broad overview of it. What are your thoughts or observations about that topic? Yeah, I think that's right. It's, they are expensive. It's, and as far as going through, you can get attorney's fees. And I think a lot of times judges order attorney's fees on these cases when they think that parental alienation has been going on. But a lot of times that's at the end of the case. Um, and like you said, that's sometimes that's because the court's still investigating. There's some legal reasons for that. There's a case out of the Third Court of Appeals in Austin, the N. Ray Rogers case that addresses interim attorney's fees on, on a modification. And it's a case that, that kind of cuts against the court's ability to do interim attorney's fees. A simplistic explanation is that you have to show that the child would be in some type of danger and that the, the fees are necessary to protect. And I think you can get there a lot of the times, but it is a heightened burden one. When at the end, it's a lot easier for a judge to say the burden's a lot lower for a judge at the end to do attorney's fees. And so a lot of times you'll see it done at the, at the end. But frankly, sometimes it's hard to collect though. These are just judgments. And by that, we mean it's, it's not child support. So you, if you get attorney's fees award to you, you can't garnish somebody's wages. You can't put them in jail for not paying them. You can't take their vehicles, their household, anything like that. And people, I, I tell people that not to be gloom and doom, but just so their eyes wide open, that I don't want to make false promises to people that 
don't worry, we're gonna, you're going to get every single penny back from your ex for this, which is a lot of times unfair because uh, it's not fair to the alienated parent of, of what's going on. And they should get attorney's fees at the end. And a lot of times they do, but then there's collection issues. I think we always ask for the attorney's fees and, and I think we've both been really successful in getting them. But um, I do have that honest conversation with clients too about, okay, we're going to we get this, but then you're going to have to go chase after it. And I've had you know people be successful with that. I've had people have a hard time with it and usually ultimately be successful, but it's just something that you need to be aware of when going down this path. And I had that conversation. I know you have that conversation, Brian, at the, at the very beginning. And you just have to have that Anytime you deal with alienation, the finances, the court intervention, all these remedies and everything, you just have to have a conversation with the client right off the bat that these are, this is a hard fight. This is a big sacrifice that you're going to have to make for your child or your children. But if you're willing to do it, then there is a path forward, but it's not an easy path. And, and it's certainly a path we've been through with our clients, but it, it's hard. It's hard to go through the fight, but, but it, it's hard to live through the alienation. But there is a lot of things in the tunnel. There are ways to address it. I think courts have gotten more and more sophisticated in addressing it. The mental health professionals have certainly uh, gotten more and more sophisticated about doing it. So I, I tell people it's a fight worth having. It's just you gotta be you got to be ready for it. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, thank you very much. Hopefully that's informative for everybody and we'll have more on this topic here shortly. Yeah, I think next time what we'll do is we're talking about the reverse, which is you sometimes see people falsely accused of parental alienation. And those are hard cases because of the extremeness of the, of the remedies requested in, in the accusation. So we'll do that next. But yeah, like you said, I think that's good for now. So I will talk to you soon. All right, sounds good. Bye.